0: how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Genesis part three, Creature and Evolution. Well, we've got as far as chapter two, And we've got 50 or 48 more to go. So let's uh, look in detail at chapter 2. There's a radical shift in style, in content, above all in viewpoint. When you read chapter 1 and close your eyes, you feel yourself hovering just above the earth. But when you read chapter 2 and close your eyes, you feel you're standing firmly on the ground and looking around instead of looking down. That's because in chapter 2, man has become the centre of the picture. In chapter 1, God is the centre and everything is from his angle, his point of view. But in chapter 2, man is right at the centre of the picture and man is now an individual. In fact, the generic terms of chapter 1 give way to specific names in chapter 2. In chapter 1, the human race is simply male and female In chapter 2, male and female has become Adam and Eve, two particular individuals. God himself has a name now in chapter 2. In chapter 1, he is simply God. But now in your English Bibles, it says he is the Lord God. But when you read the word LORD in capital letters in your English Bibles, that means that in the Hebrew, his name is there. And in the Hebrew, since they don't have vowels, His name is made up of four consonants, J-H-V-H, from which the word Jehovah has been coined. But that's a mistake because J is pronounced like a Y and V is pronounced like a W. So in English pronunciation it would be Y-H-W-H, from which we get the word Yahweh. In the New Jerusalem Bible, that uh, word is there, just as it is, the Yahweh God. I've already given you the English word always as being very near to that participle of the verb to be. Being, always, that's the name. So God now has a name, man now has a name and later in the chapter woman has a name. There are names here, not just names of persons but names of places. No longer are we talking about the dry land, we're talking about the land of Havilah and the land of Cush and the land of Ashur and the Garden of Eden. And not only have, has the dry land now got names, but the water has names. And there are four rivers mentioned here of which we are familiar with two today, Tigris and Euphrates. That puts the Garden of Eden somewhere near uh, east, northeastern Turkey or Armenia, somewhere in there, actually where the Mount Ararat still is, where people incidentally are still looking for Noah's Ark. So that locates us, but the significance of the names is greater than that. It's not just making things particular, names make relationships possible. And the big thing that happens in Genesis 2 is that man is seen at the centre of a network of relationships, and the meaning of life for us is in relationship. And these relationships, as we're going to see, have three dimensions. The relationship above us, the relationship to those and things below us, and the relationships that we have alongside so, there's a vertical relationship to the God above, a vertical relationship to nature below, and a horizontal nat- uh, relationship with human nature in other people and ourselves. But before we come to that, let's notice one or two more things. In chapter 1, God is simply described as God, Elohim, which means three, and yet three in one with singular verbs as we saw. And a God who is like men because man is made like God. That's a very important insight. There is an affinity between human beings and God that is lacking in every other part of God's creation. There is no animal that has this. You never saw a chimpanzee prey. There is something in us that is quite different from every other creature on earth. And that something is that we are like the Creator in a unique way. In Genesis 2, there seems to be a change to the difference between God and man, that he is unlike us and we are unlike him. And we need to balance these two facts. We are like God, yet not like him. He is like us, and yet not like us. And we need to keep that balance in order to have a good relationship with him. The fact that he's like us means that our relationship with him can be intimate. But the fact that he's unlike us will keep the relationship reverent. And this balance between intimacy and reverence is terribly important, especially in our worship. You can become too familiar with God or too pally with God, as if he's just one of the congregation. Or you you can become too awed by him and almost shrink into yourself and not be able to call him Father. He is Holy Father in heaven. He's like us and unlike us. We are like him and unlike him and we need to keep that in balance and the first two chapters help us to do that. The name Adam means dusty because that signifies what uh, material God used to make the first man. So he's called dusty and his wife is called lively or Eve to you. But they are descriptive names And names in the Bible are invariably descriptive, even onomatopoeic, meaning that the name sounds like the sound of the thing, like the word cuckoo. That's an onomatopoeic word. In fact, when man named the animals as God told him to, he used descriptions of the animals and that became its name. Names in the Bible are not only descriptive, They carry authority in them. In other words, the person who gives the name has authority over the person who receives the name. So Adam names all the animals, signifying his authority over them, and incidentally he names his wife, which uh, still applies to weddings when a wife takes the husband's name. That has profound implications. So names are important and with Genesis 2 we're right into names of one sort or another. Now look at the three dimensions of human relationships. The first is the relationship we have to the, the other creatures God has made, and the relationship is one of subduing them. God gave us the animals to serve us. That does not mean that we have a licence to be cruel or a licence to obliterate them make them extinct. But nevertheless, it does mean that animals are further down the scale of value than human beings. That's important, especially in these days when there is total confusion. I remember seeing a few women in Australia on a march of protest against the killing of baby seals, and I know that those same women would not hesitate to have an abortion. We live in a crazy world where a baby seal is considered of more value than a human being. Jesus was willing to sacrifice 2,000 pigs in order to save one man's sanity and restore him to his family. We need to get a sense of proportion. That doesn't mean we've got to treat animals as if they have no feelings, but it does mean that uh, there is a scale of values and the creatures are put under man to serve man, Later, we shall see after the flood to provide food for men, and uh, God cancelled the vegetarianism of creation after the flood. You remember reading that in Genesis uh, one and two, God gave man a vegetarian diet of fruit and seed, and gave the uh, well made the animals herbivores rather than carnivores. That's uh, a significant thing too. So, in relation to nature below us, we are to have dominion over nature and rule nature and therefore affect it. We're to cultivate nature and control it. It's interesting that man needs an environment that is both utilitarian and aesthetic, both useful and beautiful. And God did not put man in the wilderness. He planted a garden for him that had aesthetic as well as utilitarian value, much as old cottage gardens in England were a mixture of pansies and potatoes, uh, the useful and the beautiful alongside each other. Man needs more than utility. He needs more than food. He needs beauty around him because he has that within him which appreciates beauty. I never saw a dog gazing at a sunset and saying, isn't that (laughs) marvellous? There is that within us like God which needs more than mere existence. We need to appreciate and enjoy things and not just survive. Well now the second relationship we have is to God above and those two trees in the garden are very important. One made you live longer and one made you live shorter. Those two trees are not uh, magical trees. They are what I would call sacramental trees. God can appoint physical channels to communicate spiritual blessings or curses to us. That's why taking bread and wine wrongly in the Lord's Supper can lead you to be sick and even die. It's because God, they're not magical the bread and wine, but God has appointed those physical channels of his grace and of his judgment. And so I see nothing strange in trees that had such profound spiritual effects. It's the sacramental principle again. God uses the physical to communicate the spiritual. One tree, the tree of life, tells me that Adam and Eve were not by nature immortal, but were capable of being immortal. They wouldn't have lived forever by some inherent quality of their own, but by having access to the tree of life, they could go on living forever. No scientist has yet discovered why we die. They have discovered many ways how we die, but why is it that the clock inside us starts winding down? After all, it's a wonderful machine, the body, and if we keep it supplied with food and fresh air and exercise, it can go on replacing itself. I change my skin every few weeks. Most of the dust in your bedroom is your discarded skin. And you can go on replacing broken parts, an amazing machine. Why can't it go on doing that? No scientist can tell us. They're trying to find the elixir of life, the secret of keeping the clock going. But the secret was in the tree of life and God was making possible for human beings to go on living forever by putting that tree in the garden for him. So man was not inherently immortal, but could be by feeding on God's constant supply of life. The other tree, however, was a very significant tree. When you read the word knowledge, substitute for that the word experience. For knowledge in the Bible is personal experience. Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore a son. That's what knowledge is in Scripture. It is a personal experience of someone or something to know. And God said, I don't want you to know good and evil. Or to put it simply, I want you to retain your innocence. Tragedy is, every one of us in this room has lost our innocence in one way or another because once you do a wrong thing, you can never be the same as you were. You you may be forgiven but you've lost your innocence. The terrible thing to lose, because happiness belongs to innocence. That's why Paul said, in things evil, I'd rather be as innocent as a baby. Innocence is happiness. And God wanted Adam and Eve to retain their innocence, so why did he put such a tree within their reach? It was his way of saying, I retain moral authority over you. In other words, you don't decide for yourself what's right and wrong, you trust me to tell you what's right and wrong. And of course every parent hopes their children will do the same. You hope your children won't find out the hard way what's bad for them. You hope they'll trust you and keep off what's bad. But that is your parental authority. And God is saying to the human beings he's created, you are not landlords on earth, you are the tenants and I'm the landlord and I retain the right to tell you what's good for you and what isn't. The trouble is most of us, in fact all of us, in some way or another won't be told we're going to try it for ourselves to see whether it's good or bad. The result is you lose your innocence, you can never be the same again. It's tragic. Well now that's what the tree stood for. It was saying you still relate to me as your moral authority. I still decide what's good and bad for you. Then the relationship alongside man not only needs to relate to that which is beneath him and he who is above him, he needs someone alongside him. We need horizontal relationships. Something rather sad about an old age pensioner who only relates to a cat. There's something not fully human there. Do you know what I mean? nor are we fully human if we're just relating to God and not to other people. We need this network. I love the word shalom. I always sign it in books, and I'm willing to sign you books later, by the way, but I always sign shalom then my name. Shalom is a beautiful word. It means harmony, harmony with yourself, harmony with God, harmony with other people, and harmony with nature. There's nothing better you could wish for somebody than that, is there? Shalom. Harmony with yourself, with others, with God and with nature. Here we have in Genesis 2 a picture of that harmony. And God warns Adam, break that harmony and you have to die. Not necessarily immediately, but the clock will begin to wind down. And the reason why God said that is very simple. It seems a harsh punishment for just a little sin. But God is saying that once you have experienced evil, I have to limit the length of your life on earth, otherwise evil would become eternal. Now you can see the sense of that, can't you? That if God allowed rebellious people to live forever, they would ruin his universe forever. So he has put a time limit on those who will not accept his moral authority. Now man needed this horizontal relationship, a suitable companion. And however much a pet may mean, a dog or a cat or a bird cannot ever replace personal friendship with other human beings. Now in Genesis 1, male and female are equal in dignity and we shall see later in depravity and in destiny. Let there be no mistake, the first statement about male and female in the Bible, they are both equally in the image of God. But in Genesis 2, their function is different. And we notice four things that are all picked up in the New Testament. Number one, woman is made from man. She therefore derives her being from him. Number two, she is made after man. Therefore, he carries the responsibility of the firstborn. The significance of that will become clear in Genesis 3, where Adam is blamed for the sin, not Eve. He was responsible for her. And the third thing that is stated is that she was made for him. Adam had a job before he had a wife, and man is made primarily for his work, and woman is made primarily for relationships. That doesn't mean that a man mustn't have relationships or that a woman mustn't go out to work. It's asking what is the primary purpose for which God made male and female. And the fact that man named woman in this chapter also shows how the partnership is to work, not as a democracy. How can it when there are only two votes and each has one? but as a partnership in which one has the responsibility rather than the right of leadership. And that's how it is meant to work in cooperation. It becomes competition when that leadership becomes domination on the part of the man. That simply leads to defiance in the woman and the harmony is broken. There are many things said here in Genesis 2 which are terribly relevant Here they are. Sex is good. It is not spelt S-I-N. It is beautiful. In fact, God said it was very good. Sex was created for partnership rather than parenthood. That's a very important point which has (coughs) bearing on the question of contraception. The pattern for sexual enjoyment is monogamy. The schoolboy called it monotony, but. Actually, that means to be married to one person for the rest of your joint existence. That here marriage is made up of two things, leaving and cleaving, which means there is a physical and a social aspect which together make a marriage. Either without the other is not a marriage. Sexual intercourse without social recognition is not marriage, it's fornication. Social recognition without consummation is not a marriage. Um, and therefore should be annulled. An important point here is that marriage takes precedence over all other relationships. There would be no jokes about parents-in-law if that had been observed throughout history. A person's partner is their first priority before all other relationships, before even the children, that husband and wife put each other absolutely top priority. The ideal here painted of a couple is with nothing to hide from each other, with no embarrassment and total openness to each other. Amazing picture here and it's to this picture that Jesus was to appeal centuries later. There are many more things I could have pointed out. Well now here is a human being in this matrix of relationships with a God above, with companion alongside and with nature underneath to subdue what is below, to submit to what is above or who is above and to look to each other for support alongside. That's the picture and these are the three basic relationships which every human being needs and needs to get right. And when sin comes in, as we shall see, every one of these relationships is spoiled. The whole network is broken. Well now, this is Genesis 2 looking at man in his context as a creature within creation. And the messages that it brings are very clear and very much needed. However, there are scientific problems and particularly two which I feel we ought to look at briefly during this talk. The one is, where do prehistoric men fit in? In other words, modern man's relationship to prehistoric men. And the other of course is the much bigger question, is man directly and physically related to the animal world, the whole question of evolution? It'd be much easier to discuss evolution if it was limited to plants and animals. It was the inclusion of man in that theory that uh, provoked the major crisis and indeed raises the major question. Let's look first then at our relationship to prehistoric men. Since various remains have been found, especially by the leakies, father and son, in the Orduvai Gorge in Kenya and in other places, the claim that human life began in Africa rather than the Middle East where the Bible puts it. This raises all kinds of questions. We need to look first then at the relationship of modern men to prehistoric men. What does science say about this? What does Scripture say and can they be reconciled? Let's look first at what the Bible says about the origin of men. Quite clearly, the Bible says man is made of the same original material as the animals. The animals were made from the dust of the earth. We too are made of exactly the same minerals that are found in the crust of the earth. I gather that the minerals in my body are worth about 85 pence. Doesn't help my self esteem, but. I know that all these elements will go back to the earth, either quickly in cremation or slowly in burial, but they'll go back to where they belong and where they came from, so that man and animals are made from the same stuff. And that phrase in Genesis 2, that God breathed into the dust man became a living soul, don't let that word soul mislead you. That exact phrase is used of the animals in Genesis 1. They are called living souls because in Hebrew the word soul simply means a breathing body. And so since animals and men are described as living souls, they are the same kind of beings. We are breathing bodies. That's why when your body is in danger of stopping breathing, you send out an SOS. Instead of an SOB, you send out, save our souls. What you mean is save my breathing body. That's Hebrew talk. Again, Lord Soper in Hyde Park Corner was once asked, what shape is your soul? And he replied, oblong, which is good theology. I am an oblong soul. I'll be buried in an oblong box. That's the shape of my soul. And the questioner then asked him, then where is the soul in the body? He said, where the music is in the organ which again was good theology because you can take an organ or a piano to pieces and you won't find the music, but it's there. It's there when it's made into a living thing by somebody else. Now that's important because that word soul in Genesis 2 has misled many people into thinking that what makes man unique is that he has a soul. No, that word soul simply means a breathing body. But I think I have to say that Genesis 2 speaks very clearly of man as a special creation and does seem incompatible with believing that man and the anthropoid apes came from common stock. So there is a direct clash there. And the statement that he is made in the image of God, that he's made direct from dust and not from an animal and made in the image of God, seems to put him in a very special creation category. And the Hebrew word bara is used three times, as I've said, of matter, life and man, as if there's something quite new and unique about man. Now, when we look at what science says, oh, by the way, historical uh, understanding of man emphasises the unity of the human race. Paul, speaking in Athens, said, God has made us of one blood. That's true. I know there are different varieties of blood but everything in history points to the unity of our human race at present. And I've studied agricultural archaeology a little, and it's interesting that agricultural archaeology puts the origins of growing corn and domesticating animals exactly where the Bible puts the Garden of Eden. The earliest traces we have of agriculture are in northeast Turkey, southern Armenia, exactly where the Garden of Eden was. I found that an interesting sidelight. But when we ask what science is saying, many people would have us look at this false antithesis. Has science made false investigations into prehistoric men or has Scripture given us false information? Once again, the repudiation of one or the other is presented to us. For example, it said that pilt down men was a forgery. Have you heard that? You know Piltdown Man down in Sussex? There's a pub called that right near the spot where it was found, but Piltdown Man was discovered to be the jaw of a pig. And many Christians threw their hats up in the air, shouted hallelujah and said, there you are, science was wrong. But we have to be honest and say, who discovered Piltdown was a forgery? It wasn't Christians who discovered that. It was science that discovered it was a forgery. You can't have it both ways, Christians. You can't say science is wrong because Piltdown was a forgery when science discovered it was a forgery. We must be honest about all this. And quite clearly, science has discovered remains that look astonishingly like us. Some of the different um, terms, I've written some of them down here, I thought I had. Neanderthal man, Peking man, Java man, Australian man and the Leakeys have claimed now to have got back to four million years ago and found human remains in Africa. And now it's almost accepted that human origins are to be found in Africa rather than the Middle East. Well now it's interesting the dating of this. Homo sapiens is said to go back 30,000 years. Neanderthal, forty to 150,000, Swanscombe, 200,000, Erectus, that's China and Java man, 300,000, Australian man, 500,000 and now African man, two and a half million, three million, four million. 3 million, 4 million. What do we say about all this? Well, the first thing we need to say very strongly is that nothing has yet been found that is half ape and half man. There are prehistoric human remains, but there's nothing half-in-half as yet. Second thing I want to say is that not all these groups are our ancestors and that too is now acknowledged. So that anthropology is now in a state of flux and these are not ours. Third thing, they don't follow a progressive order. Have you seen these pictures of a sort of ape gradually straightening up And getting a bigger head. I mean, I could do the same thing with aeroplanes. This is a picture of the evolution of supersonic aircraft and it all looks so neat, but that didn't develop into that by itself and just making a picture of the development doesn't prove a thing. In fact, it does prove that there was an intelligence making those things, but um, we've seen all this. It doesn't follow some of the earliest human remains had larger brains than today and walked more upright. And in fact, the consensus of opinion now is that none of these groups are ours, not homo sapiens. Well, what, how do we deal with this? There are three possible ways. One is to say that prehistoric man was biblical man and what we're digging up was the same as Adam made in the image of God. Some have even suggested that Genesis 1 was Paleolithic hunting men and Genesis 2 was Neolithic farming men. Well, that's one possibility. The second is that prehistoric men at some point changed into biblical men, that at some point this animal-like or man-like animal became the image of God. Then there's a discussion as to whether one changed or all of them changed and that leads to more discussion. The third possibility is that prehistoric men were not biblical men. They had our physical appearance, more or less. They used tools, but there is no trace of religion or of prayer. They were not made in the image of God. Which of those three? I'm not going to tell you which, I think, because my feeling is that anthropology is in such a state of flux that we don't need to answer the question. And even if we could, does it really matter? I'm reminded of the two chimpanzees arguing and one said to the other, am I my keeper's brother? (laughs) Well, let's move on. Let's move on to evolution, which is the biggest issue, not how do we relate to prehistoric men, but how do we relate to the animals. And I must give you a few terms to go on with so that we know what we're talking about. Most assume that evolution is Charles Darwin's theory. It isn't actually. It was Aristotle's and in modern days it was Erasmus Darwin who propounded it. That was Charles's granddad. But Charles picked it up from his atheist grandfather and he made it popular. Now there are certain terms we need to know. The first is variation, which is the belief that there have been small gradual changes in form, which are passed on to each generation. So each generation changes slightly and passes on the change. The second is that from those variations there has been a natural selection, which means the survival of those most suited to their environment. In other words, Against the coal pit heaps in northeast England, the black moth was more suited to camouflage than the white, so the white moth died out and the black moth survived. Now that the coal slag heaps have gone, in my part of the country, the northeast, the white moths are coming back again and the black moths are disappearing. Which is more suitable to its environment? There's a natural selection going on so that those that are more adapted to their environment survive. This selection is natural, it happens automatically within nature, with no help from outside nature. Nature herself selects those species more suitable, but that slow gradual process has now changed. A Frenchman called Lamarck said that instead of slow gradual changes, there were sudden huge changes, mutations he called them, It was more like a staircase than an escalator. And there's been debate between these two things to try and account. Two more terms, then we can look at it. The first term, microevolution, believes that there has been limited change within certain animal groups, within the horse group or the dog group. And I believe that science has certainly proved microevolution but the macroevolution is the belief that all animals came from the same origin and that all are related and all go back to the same simple form of life that developed into a more and more complex being. One other word that I want to introduce you to, which to me is crucial, it's the word struggle. Believing this... The word struggle means the survival of the fittest and that is a concept that has caused more suffering in the 20th century, more human suffering than almost any other idea. I want to show you how in a moment. I'm not going to argue the case for or against evolution except to point out that evolution is still a theory. It has not been proven and in fact, the more evidence we get from fossil life, the less it looks like being an adequate theory of how the different forms of life arose. For example, in the fossil evidence, most different groups appear simultaneously quite quickly in the Cambrian period. They don't gradually appear over ages, they appear almost together. Secondly, the complex forms of life and the simple forms of life appear together. There isn't a train from the simple to the complex. Thirdly, there are very, very few bridge fossils that are halfway between one species and another. Next, all life right from the beginning is very complicated. It always had DNA in it. Next. Mutations, sudden changes, usually deform and cause creatures to die out. Next, interbreeding usually leads to st- sterility. And so I could go on. Above all, the statistics do not allow for this to have happened. There isn't enough time. That's why a new theory is that life started on another planet and floated through space and landed here. There really isn't enough time here statistically for all these varieties to have developed. I want to go on to something quite different. The effect of this theory on human beings. Not only has it fed our pride in thinking we have come so far that we are going to go on, up and up and up and on and on and on, as an English prime minister put it, which is rather better than back to basics. But uh, I want to show you now what has happened with this word struggle. You'll find it in American capitalism. Men like John D. Rockefeller said, business is the survival of the fittest. And that led to untold suffering. You find it in fascism. Adolf Hitler's book was called My Struggle, and he believed in the survival of the fittest, the fittest being the German Aryan race, and certainly not the Jewish people. You find it in communism. Karl Marx wrote about the struggle between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, which must issue in revolution. You find it This word struggle in the early days of colonialism when people were simply wiped out in the name of progress. And I am bold enough to say that this idea, the survival of the fittest when applied to human beings, has caused more suffering than any other idea. But it has also faced us with two huge choices and I'm going to take a few extra minutes in this talk just to give you these choices. What are we really saying when we look at the issue of creation and evolution? It faces us with a mental choice. If you believe in creation, you believe in a Father God. If you believe in evolution, you tend to go for Mother Nature, a lady who doesn't exist. If you believe in creation, You believe that this universe was the result of a personal choice or an impersonal chance, that there was a designed purpose under creation but under evolution only a random pattern. With creation, the universe is a supernatural production. In evolution it's a natural process. Under creation, the whole universe is an open situation, open to personal intervention, both by God and man. Here, we have nature as a closed system that operates itself. There, we have the concept of providence, that God cares for his creation and provides for it and looks after it. Here, we have simply coincidence. When anything good happens, it's merely a coincidence. On that side, we have a faith based on fact, on this side a faith based on fancy, for it's simply a theory. On that side, God is free to make something and to make man in his own image. On this side, man is free to make God in whatever image he chooses in his imagination. That's the kind of mental difference of thinking of creation and evolution. But when we look beyond that, we see that behind it there is a moral choice. See the question we're trying to answer now is, why is it that people seize on the theory of evolution, hold it almost fanatically? The answer is deep down, it's the only alternative if you want to believe there is no God over us. Under creation God is Lord, under evolution man is Lord. Creation, we are under divine authority but here we are autonomous as humans and can decide things for ourselves here there are absolute standards of right or wrong here there are only relative situations here we talk of duty and responsibility but here we talk of demand and rights there We have an infant dependence, we become as little children and speak of a heavenly father. But here man is proud of adult independence, man come of age, no longer needing God. There man is a fallen creature, here he is rising. There, salvation of the weak, here survival of the strong. Nietzsche, the philosopher behind Hitler, said he hated Christianity because it kept weak people going. It looked after sick people and dying people. But his philosophy was survival of the strong. There, right is might, that when you do what is right, you are powerful. Here, might is right. When you are powerful, whatever you do is right. That leads to a situation of peace, this to war, always has done. That emphasises obedience. This says, indulge yourself. That says, faith, hope and love are the three main virtues in life. This says fatalism, helplessness and luck are where we are. That leads to heaven, this leads to hell. I have drawn this out so that you can see where the theory begins to lead when you think of man as simply a developed animal. I am not surprised when children have been told for 10 years in school, you came from the animals, if when they leave school they behave like that. Well, I've given you a feel of the issue. In the next talk, we'll see how man has fallen and the effects that had on his family, on his society, on so many other things. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidporson.org.